Please rise for the reading of God's Word. We are going through the book of Luke, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We are in a very familiar passage, Luke 10. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Anyone need a Bible? Raise your hand. Someone will come to you with a Bible. Verse 25. Verse 25, the book of Luke says this, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so Jesus answered, rather the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, and Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, there's so much to learn here this morning from uh, your word. I pray, Father, that you would give us life by your word, by the Holy Spirit working through us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. So this is the story of the Good Samaritan. It's often called a parable, but it doesn't say it was a parable. Parables usually are introduced with the statement, and Jesus said a parable. I personally... Uh, agree with those who think this really happened and happened this event. In fact, I feel like that gives us a greater understanding of what is actually going uh, on. But I want to set the context for this uh, this story here, and it's really in verse 21. If you read verse 21 with me, we read it last week. It says this. It says this, chapter 10, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. So we were in this last week. Uh, Jesus uh, had just sent out 70 disciples, two by two, to go out and heal the sick, cast out demons, and declare the good, the kingdom of God to anyone they encountered. And the 70 disciples came back filled with joy. Why? Because it happened. Because they had been given power and authority by Jesus. They had healed the sick. They had cast out demons. They saw the life-changing effects of declaring the word of God uh, to people. And verse 17 says, they rejoiced. They rejoiced in that. They came back, wow, this is incredible. But who else was rejoicing? Who else was rejoicing? Jesus. Verse 21 says, Jesus, in that hour, rejoiced in the Spirit. Now, this is the only time in the New Testament that you will see Jesus rejoicing. Doesn't mean that this is the only time he rejoiced, but it's the only time written in Scripture in the New Testament where he is rejoicing. Now, if there's something that makes God rejoice, I want to know what it is. Don't you? So why is he rejoicing here? Again, verse 21, it says he rejoiced in the Spirit, saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Jesus is rejoicing because God had given these men, these very simple men, most of them were fishermen, common laborers, tradesmen, Jesus is rejoicing that God had given them the glorious experience of the kingdom of God and of seeing the power of God work through them. He's rejoicing in their salvation. He's rejoicing that God had saved them, that God had brought these 70 men out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. He's rejoicing at that. We put up this verse last week, Colossians chapter 1. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Only God knows, only God knows how dark is that kingdom of darkness. And only he can rejoice in the fullest meaning of this sense because only he fully understands what it means and how far a person has come and what has happened when they're transferred to the kingdom of, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of uh, the sun. So don't lose sight of this fact that God rejoiced when he saved you, when you were saved, when you came in with the harvest. Only time in the Gospels. It says, it, it says that Jesus is rejoicing. Doesn't mean he didn't rejoice other times. But that's, that's, that's wow. That's, that's an eye-opener, isn't it? Now, 
It may seem a little odd to us when we read in verse 21 that it says that part of the reason Jesus is rejoicing is the fact that the things of the kingdom are hidden, were hidden by God from the wise and prudent. That seems strange. Who are the wise and prudent? Well, the wise and prudent, we actually meet one this morning, right? It's this lawyer that is asking Jesus questions. The wise and prudent are men and women who have, through the accumulation of learning and knowledge and education, they've chosen to elevate themselves to a place higher than God himself. The wise and prudent are men and women who have stolen from God's glory and taken it for themselves. Shockingly, tragically, they are often, the wise and prudent are often religious people, church people. In fact, again, one of them shows up here in verse 25. It says, behold a certain lawyer. So here's one of them, the wise and prudent. It says, now, now this is not the kind of lawyer, by the way, who represents someone at a trial or a, you know, someone who gets a DUI or, or robs a bank. That's not that kind of lawyer. This is the kind of lawyer who's an expert in Old Testament law. We don't really use the phrase lawyer in that way today, but that's the kind of lawyer he is. It says, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so the lawyer answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Now, there's a few things I, which aren't necessarily the focus of the, of, the, uh, of the central message here, but still, I don't want you to miss. For example, there's so much for us to learn just in the method that Jesus uses to answer this lawyer's question. The lawyer asks him, uh, teacher, he asks him a question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit uh, eternal life? How does Jesus respond with a question? Oh, how we can learn from this, how I can learn from this. You know, I tell you, some of us, uh, we get ourselves a little Bible knowledge. Some uh, one comes up to us and, and asks us a question about God, and, and what do they get? A 45-minute lecture on all that stuff that's in our head. Ugh. I cringe just thinking back when, I, when, I, when I've done this. And I do do this. But what do we learn here in Luke 10 is, is a discipleship, a Jesus-style method. Sometimes when we get a question, we should respond the same way Jesus does. What's your reading of the Bible? There's just a wonderful humility and meekness in our Lord. It also challenges the person asking the question. Another thing I don't want you to miss, notice what Jesus says in response to this question or what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, what do you think? He doesn't say, what's your opinion? He doesn't say, what do the rabbis say or the priests or the teachers? No, Jesus says, what is written in the law? In other words, what does the word of God say? Jesus points them to the word of God. Opinions don't matter to Jesus, particularly human opinions. They don't matter. Now, one of the things that was so troubling to me before I became a Christian uh, it, is that every six months, 
I changed my opinion about God. And that was just troubling to me. It finally dawned on me, God isn't like that. God doesn't change every six months, nor does he want me to be changing my opinion about him every six months. God, God wants us to be grounded, not in opinions about him. Our opinions don't matter, but grounded in the unchanging truth about uh, about him, which is the wonderful thing about the Bible. That's what it is. It's the unchanging truth about God. So Jesus says, he doesn't say, what do you think? He says, well, what is written? What is written? The last thing, I don't want you to miss this before we get to the heart of the message here, is that notice Jesus asked the man, what is your reading of the Bible? What is your reading of the Bible? He asked him. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, listen, is asking you the same thing this morning. So what's your reading? What's your understanding of the Word? What's your understanding of the Word of God? Are you reading it? Do you understand it? God's asking you the same thing this morning. The Holy Spirit is. What's written in the Bible? Here's the deal. In fact, God does ask this question. <laughs> he does to me all the time. You know, I come to him with something, Lord, you know... What this person did to me was just so unfair. It was so offensive. It was so ugly, so wrong. What should I do, Lord? Steve, what does the Word of God say? No, God, it was, I don't want that. You know, I know what it says. Love your enemies. I want a different answer, Lord. What does it say? No, look at the Word of God. God the Holy Spirit's always directing us, just as Jesus does here, to the Word of God. So, Verse 26 again, he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so in verse 27, the lawyer says this. He says, he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. So let's break this down a little. Do this, and you will live. Let's break down these verses. The first thing I want you to notice is this. The lawyer asks, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you answer correctly, do this, and you will live. Notice the lawyer used that, that phrase, eternal life. Jesus doesn't. He uses the word live. There's something to Learn from that. In the mind of God, the two things are, uh, are the same. Now, where am I going with this? Listen, this is important. Sometimes we think <laughs> that when a person gives their life to Christ or we give our life to Christ, that means that when we die, how many, however many years from now, at that point, we are given eternal life. God doesn't look at it that way. He doesn't look at it that, that, that way. The Bible teaches that when you give your life to Jesus, the Bible says he knocks at the door of your heart. When you open up and he comes in, you have eternal life right then. The life of God comes into you right then. That's why Jesus says, do these things, you will live. You will have it now. That's what the Bible teaches, not some uh, future far-off uh, date. Now, why, why is this important? Because if we think eternal life starts at some way-off distant point when we die, we will live out our life like that as a citizen of earth. 
But the Bible says that again, when you come to Jesus, when you confess and believe in your heart that he's Lord and is your Savior, it says that you're transferred from one kingdom to another, from one citizenship to another. You're a citizen of, uh, of heaven. God wants us living not as citizens of earth, but of heaven. So Jesus says to this lawyer, do this and you will live now. So the lawyer gives the answer. Uh, so do, do what and you will live? So what is it that you will do that you will live? Well, again, verse 27 says, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Underscore the word all. With all your soul. Underline the word all. With all your strength. Circle that word all. And with all your mind. Put a star around it. All, 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 it says. This is what the Bible teaches. In fact, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, Jesus himself teaches that all of God's law is fulfilled if just these two commandments are fulfilled. Number one, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. So Jesus says here, you follow those two laws, and you fulfill the entire Old Testament law, and you will have eternal life now. You'll live. There's one small problem with that. Anyone know what it is? Anyone? Have you, have, I'll just ask you this question. Have you ever met anybody who followed those two laws? Have you ever even heard of anybody who followed the, those two laws? Apart from Jesus, of course. I'll go further than that. Have you ever heard of someone doing it for one day? The person uh, does not exist. Very basic understanding of the Bible here. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That verse just needs to be branded into our, into our minds, into our heart. It also says in Psalm 130, I love this one, uh, the psalmist says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who would stand? Who could stand? No one, of course. And then I believe we have one more from Galatians 3.10. This is sort of Paul, the Apostle Paul, flipping it all on its head. He's quoting uh, the, the Old Testament law here. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. In other words, wow, we have a big problem here. We're cursed because we, do, we haven't done, nor do we have the capacity to do everything in the book of the law. Now... With that in mind, that it's true, if someone followed the law, that would indeed, they would have uh, eternal life, but in fact, no one has ever been able to do it. I read Jesus' response here and to this lawyer, and I, I tell you, I find it utterly awe-inspiring, sublime. Anyone familiar with that word? Anyone? Sublime, there you go. 
It's a word frequently used by Puritans in the 16th and century, 16th and 17th century to describe Jesus. And I want to bring it back today. So I'm going to put the definition up here. This is what the de- uh, Webster says. Sublime, tending to inspire awe, surpassing the limits of usual excellence. <laughs> Sublime, excellence that's beyond human description or understanding. And, and if someone describes uh, by the way, if someone describes himself as sublime, I mean, that's taking boasting to a whole new level. I've actually never heard someone describe that uh, themselves as sublime. Please don't do that. Don't, don't be the first. But listen, let's borrow from the Puritans here. There's something that can only be described as sublime about the life and teaching and person of Jesus. One example I think is right here. Jesus, knowing full well that no human being is capable of following these laws, Jesus tells this man um, anyway, well, you follow these two laws, laws and, and you'll live. And in my mind, I get this picture at this point, Jesus t- is, is starts to turn around and walk away. He's perfectly comfortable with leaving this guy with, okay, you, you follow it and you'll live. Doesn't mention that it's impossible. Just tells this guy, this wise and prudent fellow. And I, I read this kind of thing and I say, only Jesus could do this like this. Only Jesus And it's exactly the kind of response that this wise and prudent man, this man who had spent a good portion of his life stealing from God's glory, it's the exact response which he needed. It's sublime. Verse 29 says this, but he, so we continue now. Jesus again in verse 28 says, you've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Verse 29 says the lawyer Wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? So who's my neighbor? Now, th- now here's what this guy is doing here. And this is always what self-righteous people do. This is always what the world does. This is what goes on just rampantly in the world. Men and women, they try to lower God's standard or change it They try to lower the standard of what a man or woman must do to have eternal life. They lower it just enough so they'll qualify. So they're in. Listen, this is what man always does. Always, always, always. In the most self-serving way, they establish their own definition of what right and wrong is. And you better believe that they fall into that definition. So verse 29 says, wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who's, who's my neighbor? Well, of course, in his own mind, his neighbors were just fellow Jews. And actually, the standard was even lower than that. They were just Jews who were law-abiding, good Jews. He loved them. He loved a good law-abiding Jew. That, that, that got him in. That got him into heaven. He's trying to justify himself. This is what man always, always, always does. He lowers God's standard so he can be somehow accepted by God on the basis of his own works, his own goodness. Now, before I move on, can I say this? Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, church people, you, me, we, we do the same things. Here's what we do. We establish our own standard, our own definition of what a good Christian behaves like and, and what a spiritual person is like. 
What is reasonable behavior for a Christian in the United States of America? And, of course, the standard we come up with, of course, we meet it. And, 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 and what happens to us when we do that? You know, we just get complacent and, and unfruitful. Don't do that. Stop that. We do it, at, we do it in this church. What, what, you know, what, what, what does a Calvary Chapel person do? Well, let me look at the mature people or people who seem to be leaders in this church. I'm going to look at what they do. That is going to be my standard, and, and, and that is what I'm going to strive to be. No, don't do that. The Bible says you're supposed to follow Jesus, not Calvary Chapel, not how Christians usually are in the United States of America, and you will be in churches, maybe even this church, where you look around and you say, whoa, that's per- that person's supposed to be this, and he, she's doing that? Don't let it trip you up. You follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. I, t- I speak to people every week. I don't go to church. Why? Hypocrisy in the church. Well, you know, when you get before God on Judgment Day, you're not going to be able to bring in all these hypocrites. It's just going to be you and God. Follow Jesus. So back to our lawyer. By the way, we know there are good lawyers out there, (laughs) right? We're not picking on lawyers today, but this one uh, was off the mark. In verse 29, again, he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this is how Jesus answered. It's just only Jesus could answer like this. Jesus recounts an event which I believe happened, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he went over to the other side. Eek. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked. So it's not like he didn't see him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sat down on his animal. In other words, he he put him on his own donkey or mule and brought him to an inn, And took care of him. On the next day, when he had departed, he gave out two denarii, which is two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And then Jesus turns to the lawyer and he says, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him? who fell among the thieves. And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him, Jesus said, go and do likewise. So the first thing I want you to notice about Jesus' answer is that he really doesn't answer the question at all, does he? Anyone pick that up? The guy asks, who's my neighbors? And Jan, uh, G, uh, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't say that, answer at all like that. He, instead, he answers, here's what being a neighbor is like. Now, it's true that by the time we get to the end, of the end of this story, we do are left with the distinct impression that everyone's our neighbor. 
But that's not what this man needed to hear. He needed to hear how to be a neighbor. And you, this is Jesus. You see this. Actually, you often see it in the book of John. Someone comes up to Jesus and say, wow, you're, uh, no one does the things you do unless they're, um, they're from God. And, and Jesus, Nicodemus, he's asking, he, he comes with a, some questions in his mind, and Jesus just gets right to the heart of the matter Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus does this all the time. He doesn't answer questions. He tells people what they need to hear, what, not what they want to hear. But um, uh, again, in, in verse 36, and, uh, uh, he, he says to, to, the, to the lawyer, he says, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him? Again, he's not answering who was a neighbor. He said, Jesus answers, what is a neighbor? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. So, the basic context of this particular story, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. They had no interactions with each other. Why? It was your typical sort of historical ethnic thing. Uh, at one time, the Samaritans had been Jews. They could trace themselves right back to the Jews about a thousand years earlier. But the Samaritans, after they separated uh, from the line of J David, of King David and the Messianic line up north, they basically took the Bible, extracted from it what they didn't like, put in what they needed to put there, and really they came up with a completely twisted I would even say perverted version of what the Bible was. And, and the Jews really did not like that. And, 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 and they didn't like each other. There are reports uh, by historians of Samaritans just outright killing Jews who wandered into their territory. Uh, so, so Jews hated them. In fact, in John 8, 48, certain religious leaders came to Jesus. And remember what, what they said? They said, are we not correct that you are a Samaritan and possessed by a demon? That question always is funny to me. Oh, yeah, you're correct. Oh, how, did, how did you figure that? No, no but uh, uh, that's what they said. They, they, they put demon possession and Samaritan, you know, together. They really, really, really didn't like these guys. So anyway, this lawyer, again, in order to justify himself, in other words, in order to prove he was a-okay with God, he, he, he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus responds with this just astonishing real-life story of what love really looks like and who performs this act of love. It's a Samaritan. Oh. A Samaritan who was what? Loving his neighbor. And, of course, don't forget it. It's loving your neighbor, which was the second of two commandments. The lawyer himself had declared must be followed in order to live, in order to have eternal life. People ask, well, was this Samaritan saved? And, and people, you know, debate this. I don't think so at all. Jesus makes the point, that point very clear in John chapter 4. Tells a Samaritan woman in, in, in the book of John, salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is not from the Samaritan. It's from the Jews. The message Jesus is using uh, here uh, the, is he's actually using this unbelieving Samaritan to make a complete mockery of this religious guy's obedience to the law. Is everyone following me? So he's taking this 
unbelieving guy, the Samaritan, who does this act of love, and he's, he's recounting this story to make an, a mockery out of this lawyer's following the law, as if you can get eternal life by loving? Do you meet this standard that is here? Of course you don't. And so the whole point is, is then driven home by Jesus including the priest and the Levite in the story. Again, verse 31 says, now by chance a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. Likewise, a Levite. A Levite was a religious worker, a worker in the temple. When he arrived at the place, he came and looked and passed by on the other side. Listen, this is what religion does with people. <laughs> this is what religion, how religion leaves people. It leaves them wounded, broken, and hopeless. When all a church offers people is a religious system of religious rules, attend church so many times a week, give this much money, recite these prayers, do these charitable things, work in Sunday school, sing on the worship team, help set up the church for the service. When that is all that is offered, it leaves people wounded, broken, and hopeless. Just like man, the man here, who has been beaten up on the way to Jericho. Jesus said in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What people need is a love relationship with the living God. And so that's, that's where this, this story here, at least how commentators... Uh, um, at least how commentators comment on it gets a little complicated because while it is true at one level that the Samaritan is unsaved and Jesus is using that point to make this, get, get this guy to realize he's so far short of eternal life, at another level, you could call it a transcendent level, commentators throughout the centuries believe that this Samaritan is a type of Christ, a, represent, a representation of Jesus Christ. John Chrysostom, in the 5th in the century, starting with him, one of the early church fathers, just moving out up until today, believed that this Samaritan um, is a, a representation of what a fallen, unsaved, unbelieving person needs and wants and receives from the Lord. What did this guy do? Verse 33. First of all, it says, verse 33, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. The Bible says that when Jesus looked over the multitude, he had compassion. The word there used, I think it's Matthew 11, is like a physical reaction of pain to what he saw. In the multitude, he said, because they were harassed 
and distressed. It says here that he had compassion. That's just, that's why Jesus came into the world, and that's God's response to a dying world. Verse 34 says, so he went to him. The Bible says that God looked throughout the world to see if any man could save. No man could save, so his own arm brought salvation. He went, Jesus went to him, it says, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine throughout the Bible. What does oil represent? The Holy Spirit, the the saving, healing work of the Holy Spirit. And he set him on his own animal, on his own mule. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. He entered into a relationship with this guy. Loving is all about getting involved. Religion is all about sort of an external facade of man climbing their way to God. But here, uh, here is... What many believe, yes, is a representation of Jesus. He goes right in. It's not about man trying to uh, bind up his own wounds. It's about God coming to us and binding up our wounds. And so uh, this is what this man does. Some commentators even take this further. Verse 35 says, And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Just an allusion to the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what God does. He comes and he restores the whole man, the whole woman. But in the midst of all, so in the midst of all this, all kinds of stuff uh, is going on here. Uh, Jesus is teaching the onlookers, perhaps, about what God really looks like. But he's also trying to bring this man, who, by the way, although he's a wise and prudent man who has been stealing from God's glory, he's trying to bring him to a place where he realizes, I fall so so short of the glory of God, what I need is Messiah. What I need is Jesus. What I need is the Son of God. The Son of God. Of course, there's another teaching for us here, and it's important for us. The Bible says that an evidence of real salvation in a person's life is indeed love. In, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, I'm going to put it up here. It says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And the Bible, it says also in 1 John chapter 4, how can anyone say he loves God but also hate his brother? So, just a prophetic word for the church today that although it is very true, the Bible says that we are not saved by loving someone, it does say that if we are saved, we love. That is an evidence, an indication of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 says, 
We are not saved by works. You're saved by grace, through faith. And it's not even of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone boast, lest anyone steal God's glory. But then it goes on to say in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 10, but you are saved for works. You're not saved by works. You're saved for works. You're not saved by works, but for works. By work, for works. You're saved for works, for love, for love. And the greatest piece of God's word is love. The, the Apostle Paul says in, in, in his letter to Timothy, the purpose of the word of God, the purpose of all our instruction is love. And Jesus says, they will know that you are mine by your love for one another. So are you guys going to start using this word sublime or what? I mean, how many different messages are in one small story there? Only Jesus can do stuff like this. We could talk about this for the next three Sundays. I'm going to just call the worship team up here, and uh, also we'll have some folks come up who are praying just in the, uh, the, the two corners here. There'll be some folks who uh, are praying. Look, if, the, if there's um, anything that stirred your heart during this message you'd like to pray about, uh, that's, please come up while the worship team uh, is playing, or they'll remain here after the service. And um, if you have never entered into a relationship with a living God, the Bible says, again, you, you can't do so on your own goodness by trying to love when you leave this room. You're going to fall short. But the Bible says that Jesus, here's the, here's the wonderful, wonderful good news. You know that word gospel, it means good news. Well, the good news can be, uh, can be all reduced to this fact, that these two laws... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and, and your neighbor as yourself were perfectly followed by Jesus Christ. And that when you ask Jesus into your life, the Bible says again, he knocks at the door of your heart. You open it up, he'll come in. You are given his righteousness. You are given to your, you are, it is credited to your account before all of heaven Jesus' righteousness is credited to your account. His obedience to these two laws, this perfect obedience, is credited to your account. That is incredible good news. Incredibly good news. And so, but if you've never done that, if you've never opened up your heart and, and said, Lord, I've had it. I'm leaving my life the way as I understand it, just living my life for, my, for myself, and I want to make Jesus my Lord. If you've never done that, you can also come up. But any, any prayer requests that you have come up uh, during the closing worship song, why don't you rise for the closing worship song, and I also close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for uh, this incredible, this incredible uh, story, just a few verses, Lord, and there's... There seems like there's a dozen different messages or levels, Lord. Sublime, it's what it is. Excellent beyond description. And we just praise you for that. And we just worship you for that. And Lord, you say that you want to make us worshipers. 
people who worship in spirit and in truth, and, and we've gotten this truth this morning, Lord, and it does. It, it makes us want to worship you. Lord, if it has not had that effect on anyone's heart today, I just pray, Lord, that you would minister to them and bring them to the place where it does that very thing, Lord, that worship, that longing to seek you, that longing to be like you. Lord Jesus, we want to be like you. Help us not to look at people. Help us not to create a standard uh, that is comprised of what good Christians do or good people do, but rather just simply you. You're the only one worth following, Jesus. And we thank you for that. We thank you for dying for our sins. And that death did not keep you in the grave, but raise you to new life, and that you now give that life to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.